This is episode 465 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Today, we will look at one of the lost disciplines of the Christian life. It is something that has fallen out of vogue to the detriment of the church today, and that discipline is fasting. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Who wants to fast, right? And isn't fasting some medieval Christian ritual that people stopped doing a long time ago? Plus, Fasting makes me feel like a fanatic or a Christian extremist, and nobody wants to seem more committed to Christ than everybody else. And if I fast, won't I starve? Isn't it unhealthy? Plus, I'm not really sure if there are any real benefits in fasting to my Christian life today. I don't know anybody who fasts, and I really don't know anybody who knows anybody who fasts. So, if it's okay with you, I'll pass. See the problem? But as we will discover today, fasting is not something optional in our Christian life. It is as important as prayer. And do you know who said that? That's right, Jesus. So let's jump right in and discover the wonders of this forgotten discipline called fasting as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. It's been a couple weeks since I uh, have preached to you, and if you remember, we talked about the terrible situation our nation is in. I don't really have to describe that to you. I think you know. We talked about the only antidote for things to continue getting darker is a next great awakening. We spent some time talking about how a personal revival, then when it grows, grows into an awakening. An awakening changes governments and cultures and institutions, entire communities. But it has to begin with a personal revival. I have been taking the messages that I've been preaching to you for the last six or eight months and putting them all under this umbrella called being a faith prepper. Because we see the situations around us getting continually worse. The election is just four months away. And therefore, our faith needs to grow. And then we moved from understanding the need of a great awakening, looking for something in Scripture that would show us what we needed to do to have God pour his blessing out on His nation, on our nation again. And of course, the classic passage is Second Chronicles 7.14 that we quote and memorize because it lists some things that we think are easy to do, but they're not. This has been the, the core of what we talked about for the last couple of weeks and what we're going to be exploring for the next couple of weeks. If my people, conditional phrase, who are called by my name, we talked about that. It's not just people who claim to be Christians, but those that actually live it out. If they will humble themselves, unbelievably difficult, in a prideful, arrogant land in which we live, and pray, we talked about a couple weeks ago, and seek my face, not my hand, but my face, and then turn from their wicked ways, wickedness defined by God and not defined by what we think is bad, then he says, I will hear from heaven, And John tells us that if we pray according to his will, that he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that he will grant our desires, that he will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land, which is what we need. Not only for people in my generation, but also for my children and my grandchildren. And who knows how long things will keep going. 
But if you remember when we looked at this verse, we talked about the fact that it is totally taken out of context, that you have to read the two verses prior to that, the beginning of this paragraph, in order for 7.14 to make sense. And so here is 2 Chronicles 7.12 and 13. And what's happening here is Solomon has built this temple, and God has come and says, I will live in this temple. I have chosen a place for myself on this earth that my spirit will dwell. You can meet with me in the holy of holies, and, and I will be accessible to you. And it should have been a great day. And so God, Lord tells this to Solomon. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayers and have chosen this place for myself as a, ha- as a house of sacrifice. And you would think there would be this joyous adulation and celebration. Yes, God will remain with us. But then he turns around and he throws water on their excitement. And it's almost like, it's like a backhand to them after he told them what a good job he was doing. Here's what he said. When, not if, but when I shut up heaven and there is no rain. Excuse me? We, we, just, we just built you a, a temple, and, and you said earlier that there's no place that can contain you, but you've chosen to, to dwell in this temple, to dwell with us, your people, and you'll always be with us. And then all of a sudden, there's this bad news, when I choose, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain. Oh, okay. Or I command the locusts to devour the land. I'm talking about your land. Or send pestilence among not the pagans, but my people. What do we do? What do we do when that happens? What happens when a nation turns from God, when a people turn from God? Even the religious among them in our vernacular, the church turn from God and apostatize. And all of a sudden, God begins to pour out his judgment on the land. And there's a collateral judgment that comes even on godly people. What do we do? What happens then? What's our plan of action? What's our antidote? God, what are we supposed to do when that happens? Second Chronicles 7.14. This is the answer to God's judgment. If my people who are called by my name, the same people that I have sent locusts to devour their land, will humble themselves, because obviously they're not, and will seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways because obviously their wickedness has contributed to this, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. In other words, if they will, when God judges a land for certain sins, if those people who know him will repent of those sins and pray and live opposite of those sins, then maybe God will relent his judgment on those sins for a land towards the land. This is exactly where we are in our nation today, in the church today, and in our families. So it's a vital verse that we're looking at. And we need to not just blow it off. Oh, we'll humble themselves. Okay, Lord, I'm humble. No. We, we spent a whole Sunday talking about what that meant. And it's intense to humble yourself. And, and then pray. We talked about that two weeks ago. What what kind of prayer? What are we talking about? And seek your face? Seek fellowship with you? Do you know what happens when you seek fellowship with the Lord? That you, in your carnality, 
and me and my carnality that we have justified or we've hidden behind or we don't think really matters, when we come in the presence of the resplendent glory of the Lord, every imperfection in our life moves to the forefront. And that's why in the Old Testament, every time they encountered God, boom, man, they're on their face before him. Even the prophets and the holiest of them all. God, I'm so sorry that I've devoted my life to making money rather than you. I'm so sorry I've been so, so angry towards my family and angry towards you. I just, I've squandered my life for me and not for you. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Even Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. If you are Isaiah, then I'm doomed. If, then, it's a conditional promise. If you do this, then God will do this. There are four conditions. We've gone over this and three promises. The four conditions are this. You must humble yourself. Doesn't mean a nation has to humble themselves. It's just a remnant in that nation. It's just, and I don't know how many people that is. Only God knows. It's a remnant that can turn the tide of all of this. They will humble themselves and pray. We will focus more on that today. And seek his face, fellowship with him, not his hand, give me what I need, it's my best life now, but fellowship with him. And basically, when you come in the presence of a holy God, you will either get fried or you will turn from your wicked ways. Well, my ways really aren't that wicked. According to who? I guess according to me, to the culture in which I live, how I feel about things, it doesn't work that way. It's what he determines are wicked. Then the promise, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. We've already talked about humbling ourselves. Today we're going to continue talking about what it means to have this kind of prayer life, to pray. Two weeks ago, we asked a couple questions, practical questions. Well, what kind of prayer? I mean, what kind of prayer is it talking about here? Does it have to be a special prayer? Does it have to be a prayer that's full of scripture? I mean, how long does that prayer have to be? Can it be a short prayer, a long prayer? And what does it have to be about? Can I pray about Fluffy, my pet cat, and have God turn his hand against the nation? Or does it have to be something really serious? And, and, and do I have to pray with other people, or, or can I pray by myself? And is there, does the posture matter? Can I pray sitting down, standing up? Or do I have to be on my knees or flat on the ground before me? I mean, God, what are we talking about here? Do I have to say my prayer verbally, or, or is a mental prayer okay? I mean, tell me. I've got so many questions. Make it easy for me is what I I want to do satisfactory to you. Because when I go through this list, every one of us has a preference. I'd rather pray sitting down by myself in my head so nobody will hear me. Does that work? Does that not work? God, what do you want us to do here? What kind of prayers are we talking about? Well, I was going through and trying to to figure out the kind of prayers that Christians pray. And again, if you remember, we looked a couple weeks ago about the prayer life of Christ, trying to glean maybe what this prayer is like. But I started thinking about the kind of prayers that we pray, and I started thinking about the fact that many of our prayers avail very little. The church today prays very little. The church today's prayers have little power. James 5.16 says this, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We focus on that. Is that a physical healing? Is a spiritual healing? And we miss the next sentence. The effective. Effective. What does that even mean? Fervent. Wow, I don't know if I'm fervent in anything. 
prayer of a righteous man avails much. The sentence could say, the prayer of a man avails. But instead, the Holy Spirit put all these adjectives in here to make sure we knew the power behind this passage. These are qualifiers. The effective, fervent prayer of not just anybody, but a righteous man avails much. So what is an effective, fervent prayer? And what does a righteous man even look like? I mean, do you know any? Well, I know some people that are kind of righteous. I know some people who do righteous things. I know some people that try to be righteous, but have we ever met someone that when they walk into the room, the demons quake at the Holy Spirit inside of them? Have you ever walked into a room and the conviction of sin was so great just by the Holy Spirit in you that other people noticed it? I mean, that's what what righteousness is all about, and we'll talk about that later. And these adjectives, are they just adjectives that we just blow over and read and define? Or are they qualifiers? Are they requirements to meet this kind of prayer, to be able to pray in such a way that our family comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we and those we know experience personal revival, that maybe God will have grace on our nation and our communities and our institutions to turn that into a great awakening, and maybe... Maybe he will forestall his judgment for a season for the sake of our little ones who are under our care. And it seems like many times we're more concerned about taking care of them physically than we are providing for them spiritually. So what kind of prayers do we pray? Well, we pray church prayers and ritual prayers. Hear this all the time. Uh, Would would you pray, please? Sure, I'll pray. And we get up and clear our voice and and pray the church prayer or the ritual prayer. When I was a kid or a teenager in in church, in high school, uh, junior high, I remember I would always hear these ritual church prayers in church. The offertory prayer always said, bless the gift and the giver. Remember that? It was like a mantra. You know, you just said that. You didn't say that at the breakfast prayer. You said that during the offertory prayer. And back then it was always, and bring our boys home from Vietnam. And so we had this professional prayer that we pray, um, that we're more conscious about other people hearing our prayer than, than we are as really connecting with God. We have our habit prayers, and our habit prayers are our, you know, our prayers before we eat, and uh, you know, we, we've got Taco Bell, and we're asking the Lord to bless us to our body, which is like a miracle equivalent to crossing the Red Sea. Would you not agree? I mean, God's response would be, if you want me to bless it to your body, don't eat it. You know, but all right, so we ask that, and it's the same kind of prayer we always pray. God, you know, thank you for the food, bless it to our bodies, you know, and you provided for us in Jesus' name, whatever. Our bedtime prayers, you know, we do that with our kids at night. And now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep, and you know, and then and, and we have kitty prayers. I notice that that happens a lot when you know you pray with your grand, grandchildren. Your grandchildren pray in a very simplistic sort of way. Um, I remember. Lindsay was the best when it came to praying simplistic prayers as a kid growing up because we, we, we put this shelf in her room. She stayed in the room with Morgan, put this shelf all the way across the top, and she had, I don't know, 150 stuffed animals up there. And we just piled them. Remember all that? Yeah, out there. And so she would start praying, and we'd all be in the room and teaching our kids how to pray. And, 
and it would be her turn to pray, and I could always tell because I could hear her voice going down, and she would say, Lord, thank you for today, and thank you for being with us today, and bless, and she, I, could, I could hear her voice come, bless mommy and daddy and Krista, and bless Morgan, and oh, and bless Sparky, and bless, and she would just whip around the room asking the Lord to, remember that, to bless all her stuffed animals. Okay, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It just gets long. But but, the next day, there were three animals missing. Um, But the fact is that that sometimes we pray like that. We have kitty prayers. And so when they're praying a kitty prayer, we pray a kitty prayer because we don't want to intimidate that by a more mature prayer, and then everybody stays at the kitty level. Sometimes we pray arrow prayers. It's my turn to pray, so let me pray an arrow prayer. Well, okay. Uh, Lord, uh, bless them, you know, and shoot an arrow out here with no target, and we just pray for things like that and, you know, bless their hearts or bless them and all this kind of stuff. Sometimes we pray selfie prayers, which our prayers are always about us. Lord, I have this. Lord, I have that. Please help me do this and help me do that and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes we pray impressing prayers. where We want to pray in such a way that somebody else is awed by our prayer life and our command of Scripture. Sometimes we pray humble prayers. When you're truly broken and you truly have a need and sincere prayers where, where you need God in your life. There's all sorts of prayers that my experience has shown me that we as Christians do. But in Scripture, there's a list of types of prayers that the Bible talks to us about. The Bible talks about prayers of faith. We find this in James uh, 5. The prayer of faith will do these amazing things. There's prayers of agreement or corporate prayers where the whole church comes together or a family comes together and prays in one spirit and in one accord. You need to trace that phrase through the book of Acts. It seems like they were all in one accord and they prayed in one accord. Then, of course, there's our prayer request and our supplications. But we find in Scripture that most of the prayer requests and the supplications that we make to God were not necessarily for us. They were for someone else. What we prayed for for us, we find that in Scripture, is mostly prayers of thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for this, and thank you for this, and thank you for that. They're prayers of worship. We're going to look at that prayer in a few minutes in Acts chapter 13. There are prayers of consecration. There's prayers of intercession for other people where I'm actually almost physically in the spirit man involved in in praying for that. And of course, there's these imprecatory prayers we have where it's how long, Lord, before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, to quote the saints in Revelation. I mean, there's, there's a difference in the types of prayers we see in Scripture and the types of prayers that sometimes we feel comfortable with praying. Of course, me preaching a sermon like this, it means that nobody's ever going to pray publicly again. Um... The effective, fervent prayer. There's qualifiers in that phrase, but there's qualifiers in requirements and all sorts of promises in Scripture. Here's a classic verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that we quote all the time. Trust in the Lord. To what degree? How much? For how long? And and how committed do I need to be to my trust in the Lord for you to fulfill the promise? There's a qualifier. With all your heart. 
Well, what if I don't trust in the Lord with all my heart? What if I trust in my Lord with a third of my heart or a sliver of my heart? Or what if I trust in the Lord with all my heart for like 10 minutes, but then go back to my own understanding? Have I met the qualifier? Are you obligated to fulfill your end of this if-then promise, God? There's qualifiers here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Can you show me how that's done? Sure. Don't lean on your own understanding. In, here's another qualifier, all your ways, everything, acknowledge him and the promise he will direct your paths. Bottom line, we don't meet the qualifier. God is not obligated to fulfill the promise. We see this in every area of our life, and yet we think God acts differently. If you come to work, and if you show up on time, and if you put in 40 hours a week, and you work really hard, then I will give you a paycheck at the end of the week for your labors. If you don't show up on Monday, and you show up for two hours on Tuesday, you sleep all day on Wednesday, do you expect the paycheck on Friday? No. No, there's qualifiers and requirements that have to be met. Here's one from Jeremiah, classic verse. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. So I'll pray, and he'll listen. Is there a qualifier here? Absolutely. And you will seek me and find me. That's the promise. When? Oh, here's the qualifier. When? What? You search for me haphazardly. You search for me every Tuesday. You search for me whenever you want to. Or you search for me with all your heart. In other words, there's a prize at the end. There's There's this blessing at the end, and this blessing is to be found by God and for us to actually find him and seek his face and have fellowship with him. But he doesn't doesn't give that intimate relationship haphazardly. You don't either. You're You're getting ready to meet your spouse. You have no idea if this is the person for you, so you go on this dating deal or you have a courtship deal and somebody comes up and talks to your dad, and so you're beginning to form a relationship. And the first time you meet, you don't tell them every deep, dark secret that you have. You're reserved, and they're reserved, and they put their best foot forward, and you put your best foot forward, and we're trying to get them to like us based on our strengths and not our weaknesses. It's not until the relationship gets deeper, and all of a sudden there's a trust bond that's built there that you feel more comfortable telling them stuff that you struggle with, stuff that you're not really proud of, stuff that makes you who you are. It's only half a picture. We do that with every other relationship in life, and we don't think God puts qualifiers on his deep intimacy with us. Deuteronomy chapter 4. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and the promise is that you will find him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I'll seek you and I'll find you. Oh, 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 there's a condition. There's a condition. Well, what is that condition? You can't keep offering your children to Moloch and seek the Lord. You can't keep spitting in his face by your attitude and your actions and blow him off like he's nothing and still expect to meet him. The condition is if you speak him how, seek him how with all your heart and now with all your soul. There's a, there's a condition. 
if we think it's worth finding the Lord and him finding us and having intimacy with us, then we will sacrifice whatever's necessary to forge that relationship. Just like it was when I met Karen. You know, um, Karen should not have dated me. She was sweet poly purebred and I wasn't exactly. And we were in seminary and I was lost. And she had a bunch of music friends and I kind of had no friends. And I saw her and I wanted to get to know her. So I integrated my life in her life. And I worked hard and I diligently... Our first date, we're standing in line going to a movie. There were two people who smoked at, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. There was me and some guy named Abdul from Africa. And I'm standing in line with her, and I said, hey, do you mind if I smoke? And she looked at me and goes, actually, I do. <laughs> okay. And we stayed, what, till 3 o'clock in the morning that night? You know, I was just talking. She's talking. I'm, I didn't care. I didn't care. I wanted this relationship. And I was willing to do whatever was necessary to get her to trust me and get her to see me for not who I really was, who I wanted her to see me as. And I mean, we do that with all our different relationships, but we don't think God does that with us. The qualifiers. Confess your trespasses to one another. Really? Trust somebody like that? The word trespass here is not the word for sin. It's not talking about your deep, dark sin. It's not like saying, hey, I was unfaithful to my wife last Thursday. Don't tell her. It's something much less than that. It's, you know, I'm really struggling with porn. And I, I want to confess that to you, and I, I want you to help me be accountable. Confess your trespasses to one another because these relationships are forged that way because God is my Father and God is your Father. And pray for one another. Why? That we may be healed or delivered or made whole. The condition, the effective. What does that mean? Fervent. Being fervent about something. Being almost fanatical about something. Prayer. Prayer. Of a righteous man avails much. The seven, Second Chronicles 7.14 kind of prayer. To avail means to have strength, to be strong, to pray with power. Pray with power. Do you ever get tired of praying for your lost loved ones and they're still lost? Or praying for somebody who's struggling with a besetting sin that they can't get victory over and they come to you for prayer and you pray for them and nothing happens? And then you see in the scripture and you hear stories about other people when they pray, like God moves to answer those prayers, that they have power behind their prayers, and we're just kind of going through a mantra. How do we get this power? How do our prayers avail much, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man? One of the ways is this forgotten spiritual discipline called fasting. Oh, tune out. I don't want to do this on a time we're having a meal. But fasting. I mean, why? What does that even mean? Why would we do that? Why did Paul never talked about fasting. No, no, he didn't. But look what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 6. I want you to begin with uh, verse number 5. Here's what he says. And when you pray, okay, and he talks to us about not being a hypocrite when you pray, he talks about the motives of true prayer. Then he goes to verse number six. But you, 
when you pray. And then he talks about going to an upper room or going to my private room and praying not to be seen by other people. He talks about the motive behind my prayer. And then we go to verse number seven. And when you pray, not if, but when you pray, and then he goes on, don't make these vain repetitions so other people think you're impressive. You know, just pray to your father who's in secret. And, and then he talks a little bit more about prayer. I want you to notice this. The focus is not on the word if. Jesus never said if you pray, but when you pray, because he expected you to pray. It's part of the Christian life. He doesn't have to tell us to do something that's supposed to come naturally to us. When you pray, but you when you pray, and when you pray, and then the teaching doesn't deal with the particulars of prayer, but it talks about the motives behind something he expects us to do. Can you see that? And then we get to verse number 16. Moreover, when you fast, not if, it's not like, it, like it's something that you can choose and not choose to do. When you fast, just like prayer, it's not something you can choose and not choose to do and expect to grow as a Christian. Verse 17, but you, when you fast, and again, just like with prayer, Fasting has the when, not the if. It's not like if you fast, if you choose to fast, then these are special blessings you have because you'll be an exemplatory Christian. It's no, it's expected of everybody. That's what Jesus is talking about. I expect you to pray. I expect you to fast because that's just what believers do. And the teaching, again, about fasting has nothing to do with the particulars of fasting. It has to do with the motive behind it. There's a reason for this, but for some reason we have no problem praying. Actually, we do have a problem praying. We'd rather not pray. Uh, we'd rather just come to Bible studies and learn, but <clears throat> I'll go to worship services and be entertained and enjoy them, but the, we, if we know that praying is part of the Christian life, why have we decided that verse 16 and 17 and 18, we take out of the scriptures and decide that that's not part of the Christian life. Fasting isn't necessary. That's, that's something a long time ago. Why don't we fast today? Why do we reject fasting? And we do as a church. Many of us do as individuals. And one of the reasons is the fact that in our mind, we associate fasting with aestheticism. It's some sort of medieval Christian ritual where they would fast and they would beat themselves on the back or they would climb long poles in the air, stay in caves for decades. So we don't want anything to do with that because that's old and it's archaic and it's something that sprung up during the dark ages and the middle ages according to our feelings today. Plus, fasting makes us feel fanatical. It makes us feel extreme. It doesn't make us feel mainstream. And plus, in our culture, fasting means starving. If we don't eat, we'll die. I got to tell you what, I just, I just, I just, I'm so lightheaded. I got to have something to eat. I got to have something to eat. We just ate three hours ago. I know, but I'm just famished. I mean, we're, we're gods to our stomach and, and we don't like being hungry at all, period. Period. How many times... If you said, man, I'm starved, you go to the refrigerator and you open it up because you're starved, you'll eat anything because you're starved, and you open it up and there's yogurt and cottage cheese. You open it up and you look and go, no, I'm not really hungry anymore. Or you just finished a massive meal and you're stuffed, and you run to the cupboard and, oh, look, a box of vanilla wafers. You know, we're, our, our whole attitude towards food is messed up. I mean, every social event 
that our culture has ties up with food. Hey, I lost my job. Let's go get something to eat. It'll make you feel better. Hey, I got a promotion. Let's go get something to eat. Hey, it's your birthday. Have a cake. You know, why do we do that? But it is. It's all tied up to that. And, you know, it's, people are more upset that restaurants are closed down than it is in gas stations are closed down because it's just how we live. We equate fasting with starving. We don't like to be hungry, and that's just the way it is. Plus, and here's the big one, we don't see any real-time benefits. You know, we live in a Christian world right now that's, you know, it's like, what's in it for me? What have you done for me lately? And if I can see the benefit to what you're saying, Jesus, I'll do it. But if there's no benefit to that, then, then I don't want to waste my time because there's too many other things I could be spending my time on that I know benefits me, like building a business or, or watching a movie or reading a book or something of that nature. But I think, honestly... The major reason that we don't like fasting is because our life verse is not Psalm 115, verse 3, but our life verse is actually Ephesians 5, 29. You ready for this one? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. That's taking a verse totally out of context, by the way. Oh, I, gotta, I have to feed myself. I have to make myself feel good. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not, I'm not speaking to you as someone who has arrived. I'm speaking to you as someone who's slogging through the mire with you when it comes to this. It's just who we are. And that one kind of stings. What makes me feel better, what I want to have happen, what, what I think. I mean, we live in this selfie kind of culture right now. We live in this attitude that this cultural attitude that whatever I want is, is okay, that I can, I can look at the word of God, but if it goes against my sincerely held convictions, God, you're wrong. And it doesn't work that way at all, especially when it comes to prayer. So why should we embrace fasting today? It's really simple, because Moses fasted, and that should really settle it. Fasted several times, but not only Moses, so did David, Jesus, Peter, and the early church. They fasted all the time. Does the city of Nineveh, this pagan city, fasted in repentance at the preaching of Jonah? Ezra proclaimed a national fast. Israel often, you'll lo I love this phrase in Numbers and Deuteronomy, they afflicted their soul with fasting. Afflicted their soul with fasting. Daniel fasted for 21 days. Esther called for a three-day fast. Jehoshaphat fasted to know God's will. Elijah fasted in order to hear from the Lord. Joseph fasted while he was in prison, suffering hardships. Solomon humbled himself in fasting and prayer. Moses fasted before receiving the commandments from God in Deuteronomy chapter 9. David fasted when his son died. Elijah fasted while he was running and escaping from uh, Jezebel. Ezra fasted when he was mourning over the sin of his people, a sin of a nation. Esther fasted for the safety of the Jews. King Darius fasted for the safety of David. David fasted in order to hear prayer. And Jesus fasted during his temptation by Satan in the wilderness. Is that enough? Paul fasted after his conversion. The elders fasted before sending out Barnabas and Saul as missionaries. I love this one. I love this one. Those are Old Testament people, not this one. If you remember the story, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to, to go out on their first missionary journey. And so it says that the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers 
There was Barnabas, there was Simeon, who was called Niger, there was Lucius of Cyrene, the Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, five of them. And it says, and as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the word minister here is the word, it's liturgio, it's the word we get liturgy from. They were worshiping. So these five people were worshiping, and coupled with worshiping was fasting. We don't want to take time to have a meal. We want to afflict our soul in fasting, as the Jews did in the uh, Pentateuch. We just, want to, we, we just want to worship you, Lord. And in the middle of that worship and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke as they ministered to the Lord and worshiped. Fasted. As they worshiped and fasted, the Holy Spirit says, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, having fasted and now prayed, worshiping, fasting, and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them away. Literally, it means they let them go. Wow, that's how the early church did. And it was in the middle of a real commitment to something greater than just what makes us feel comfortable. But uh, a time of fasting and a time of intense worshiping and a time of prayer all coupled together, shutting everything off, even saying no to my flesh in order to communicate to God and have him communicate to us. In the midst of that, God speaks. Wonder why sometimes he doesn't speak like that today. Maybe it's because we're not even interested in meeting some of the conditions. Why should we embrace fasting? Well, because great leaders of the church fasted. From the Reformed view, you had Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, for example, wrote long treaties on fasting. From the Arminian view, so we cover all of Christendom here, you had John Wesley, David Brennard, and Charles Finney fasted all the time. From the higher life believers, from, the, from those people who, who wanted a deeper relationship with Christ, you have Reese Howells, Andrew Murray, and George Mueller fasted among many others. We have this legacy of Christendom about those people who live exemplary Christian lives who do something we don't even entertain the thought of today because nobody ever told us about it and because every pastor we've ever known is overweight and, and we'd rather just have potluck dinners than we have fasting times. And, and hey, when I get this pain in my stomach, oh, oh, oh. In our culture today, we have come to the conclusion that any hunger pain is evil. And it's not. It's not. Why should we embrace fasting? Here's what Andrew Murray says in his classic book, With Christ in the School of Prayer. And this book has to do with prayer. Here's what he says. Fasting helps to express, to deepen, and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves to obtain what we seek, not for ourselves, but for the kingdom of God. Fasting expresses and confirms that I'm willing to sacrifice food in order to spend that time in prayer and praise and adulation of the Lord. And every time I get a hunger pang, it reminds me of how good God is. That's what fasting does. Okay, but what is it? What is it exactly? I mean, how about if I fast and I don't get on Facebook for a week? Okay, well... That's 
reducing or eliminating maybe a snare in your life, but that's not biblical fasting. Biblical fasting, quite simple, is going without food for a period of time for a spiritual reason. It has to be a spiritual reason. If it's not a spiritual reason, then it's called dieting. And there's no spiritual blessing that comes with dieting. There's a, maybe a physical blessing, and maybe you feel better about yourself, but the fact is God doesn't bless dieting. So if you're going to fam, I'm going to do away with food, and there's no spiritual reason behind it, I'm just going to use it as a new form of dieting right now. It doesn't work. Often you find, especially in our culture, fasting is tied to praying. And we get that from the phrase Jesus used, well, why couldn't we? Came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They couldn't get this demon out of this boy. Why couldn't we get him out? Because this comes out only by prayer and fasting. And so therefore, we assume that prayer and fasting are always intricately linked. That's not always true. Sometimes you can pray without fasting. Sometimes you can fast without praying. Sometimes you pray and fast at the same time, which has been uh, my experience. But they don't always have to be hand in hand hand. Now listen carefully. For some unknown reason, and the only reason I can give you is the fact that God has just chosen fasting to be the the direct line or the shortcut for a deeper spiritual intimacy with him. For some reason, when we say no to the desires of our flesh, the strongest desire we have, which is desire to eat and to satisfy our longings, it opens up our spirit in a way that is really hard to understand. It doesn't make any sense. Why in the world, if I just not eat, that my spirit soars? But to show you that it does, every other major religion talks about fasting. Buddhist fast. Um, Gandhi fasted. I mean, there's, there's fasting for some reason. It's not just practiced in the Jews' fast. It's not just practiced in the Christian religion, but even lost people know that some, for some reason, when I shut down voluntarily food, that my awareness of the spiritual world, Christ or darkness, is heightened. And it does happen. And I don't know why it happens. And even though it's hard to understand, nevertheless, it's true. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said, when you fast. And all these, all these biblical characters and heroes of our Christian faith would not have fasted continually and wrote treaties and letters and books about them or tracts about them back then if it wasn't true. And fasting in the early church was a spiritual discipline that everybody practiced just like prayer and worship and gathering together for the believer. But for some reason, today, it's fallen out of vogue because we don't want to do it, because it seems unhealthy to us. And and anytime we are discomforted at all, I don't want to share my faith with a family member because they may not invite me to the dinner. So therefore, since I want to go to the dinner, I won't share my faith. And I don't want to have any hunger pains. And so therefore, I'm not going to fast. I don't want to feel uncomfortable when it comes to prayer. So I'm not going to pray out loud or be involved. I don't want to teach the Bible because somebody may ask me a question that I don't know. So therefore, I'm not going to do that. I mean, that's how we live. But when we realize how sold out we are to the Lord Jesus Christ or how we're supposed to be, it doesn't matter. So what is fasting? In the Bible, there's, I'm just going to go through this really quick. In the Bible, there's three basic types of fast. 
And by the way, there's no law here. If you decided that, uh, that you want to fast, then you just talk to the Lord and you decide, ask him what fast he's chosen for you and you do it. One day, one meal, a week, uh, whatever you want to do. Do I want to do all food or do I want to just do all solid food and just drink uh, juices? I mean, it doesn't matter. We're not under the law here. It's the fact that we're willing to, to stop doing what we normally do for a season in order to spend time with the Lord. First kind of fast is called a normal fast. I'll share that with you in just a second. Then you have an absolute fast, which is kind of miraculous biblically. And then you have what's called a partial fast. A normal fast is what Jesus did in the garden for 40 days, or in the wilderness for 40 days. It says, and Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Doesn't say he was thirsty. So a normal fast is when you abstain from food, but you continually drink water. You can have normal fast for extended period of times, three days, five days, seven days, 21 days, 40 days like Jesus did. You can't go a week without water unless somehow God supernaturally allows that to happen. So a normal fast, the standard fast is to say, you know what? For this week or next three days or just today or whatever you want, I want to prepare my heart just to forego food. And by the way, you won't die. Um, Just letting you know, you won't die. Uh, Forego food for a day and I want to spend that time studying the scripture. And every time that I feel a hunger pain, I want to get reminded about how good God is and However you want to do it, this is a normal fast. An absolute fast is something different. Paul was on the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden Jesus spoke to him, and he fell off his donkey, and when he came to himself, he was blind, and they led him by the hand, and he was in Damascus without sight and neither ate nor drank for three days. An absolute fast is when you abstain from food and water. This is... uh, have to be really led by the Lord to do this. And in scripture, there's only a few examples of this ever happening. And it always happens on a short period of time, except for Moses. Moses, it appears, fasted an absolute fast for a long period of time, but obviously God was sustaining him. But this is an absolute fast. No water, no, um, uh, no food for a period of time. And then, of course, you have the partial fast. I'm not going to watch Netflix this week. I'm going to get off Facebook just to spend more time in my Bible. I mean, it's technically a partial fast, although fasting always has to do biblically with food. Partial fast is what Daniel did. Daniel 10 verse 3 says, I ate no pleasant food, uh, no meat or wine came into my mouth at all. In other words, I limited what I was going to eat. I am not going to eat delicacies. I'm not going to go to Krispy Kreme anymore. Instead, what I'm going to do is maybe eat something different. The partial fast, the emphasis upon is on diet restriction and not on a complete doing away with food. Make sense? If you decide that, Lord, I want to fast and what I'm going to do is fast television, well, that's a good thing. It's not really a biblical fast, but it's a good thing Um, because you can spend that time doing something else. But if you don't spend that time doing something God-like, it's a total waste of time. In other words, fasting is to do without food from a biblical standpoint for a spiritual reason for a set period of time. No spiritual reason, it's starvation, it's dieting. There's no blessing comes from that. And you probably won't be able to sustain it. If it's a spiritual fast, 
You will find that the first couple days you'll be hungry. You won't be famished, but you'll be hungry. About day four, your body kicks into this, I don't even know what it's called. You feel almost euphoric. You feel really good. That you can sit down while everybody else is eating fried chicken and not even be tempted. As a matter of fact, you'll be looking at the grease coming off the side of their mouth, and instead of wishing it was you, you'd be going, I don't want to put that stuff in my body. Of course, it's, I can't tell you how quick it is to get back in that, putting that stuff back in our body, but, but you'll look at that and, and you'll move into this really strange, euphoric phase. And I have found when I fast that usually the first day my spirit really opens. And then it's almost like a high point, and then we settle down to a new normal about days three to f- uh, two, three, and four. And about towards the end of the first week, it kicks back up again in this, I don't ever want to leave. I mean, I don't ever want to go back the way it was before. God is sustaining, and, and it's, it's, it's real. It really is real. But why do Christians fast? Jesus let us know, and I wish I could take the time and dig into this a little bit deeper, but the reason why we fast is because he's gone, because we mourn for him, and we miss him, and we wish that he would come back And, you know, the come Lord Jesus at the end of the book of Revelation. Look what happens in Matthew chapter 9. The disciples of John the Baptist are coming to Jesus and saying to Jesus now, they're not saying to Jesus' disciples, they're saying to Jesus, why do we, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, fast often, but your disciples don't fast? Why do you not require them to fast or encourage them to fast since you're their spiritual leader or John encouraged us to fast? And Jesus said this, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Well, no, he's here. The bridegroom's here. We're getting ready for the, to, to meet the bride. You remember the video we saw last week? No, we don't mourn. We're excited about that. But the day will come when the bridegroom, Christ, will be taken away from them. And then they will fast. And then they will fast. One of the reasons why we fast is because we miss the intimate relationship with Christ that we could have if he was standing in our midst. And we long to seek his face. And we do it through fasting. And so the time to fast is not when he's with us, because he's not right now. We're seated at the right hand of the Father. The time to fast is now. Now, let me just run through these really quick, and I want to share with you some of the benefits of fasting or or why Christians fast from Scripture. Major reasons we fast to prepare our hearts to meet with God. I mean, if you were getting ready to meet with uh, Donald Trump, you would get a shower, I would assume. I don't think you would meet him after riding the lawnmower all day. You would uh, put on your best clothes. You probably wouldn't, you know, wear a shirt with stains on it. You would uh, make sure that your teeth were brushed and your hair was combed and you would present yourself the very best you possibly could. And coming to God, he has ordained one of the ways that's like a shortcut or direct route or a highway to God is found through fasting. A denial of me in order to be, to have more of him. I must decrease, John the Baptist said, and he must increase. We fast to humble ourselves before the Lord. We find that in Matthew 4 and Psalm 69. 
We fast to be heard on high. It's exactly why Ezra did it. I'm going to fast so God will hear my prayers. We ask God to remove his judgment on a nation. We find that in, in Jonah. I mean, Jonah was this unlikely prophet who gave the most lackluster, lackluster prophetic message ever. He really wanted all those people to die, and yet this revival takes place. The king orders a fast, and God chooses not to destroy the most wicked nation on the earth at that time. The same thing he could do for us today. We fast to set ourselves free from demonic oppression. And if you don't think you have demonic oppression in your life, you are deceiving yourself. We think it's just, oh, it's just a bad habit I can't get rid of. Oh, no, it's deeper than that. We fast to receive revelation from the Lord, exactly what Daniel did. We fast to get victory over the flesh, especially food. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We fast to bring our bodies under subjection. The spiritual battle takes place that when we got saved, our new man was now created in the image of Christ, but it's still encased in our old flesh. And we still have a mind that's not redeemed. And so what happens is we have a tendency of doing the same thing that we think worked in the flesh rather than relying on the spirit. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. The things that I don't want to do with my body, I do. And the things I do want to do with my spirit, I don't. And so fasting allows us to get victory over the physical man and embrace the spirit man. Finally... Fasting gives power to our prayers. And I don't know about you, but the needs in our world are getting so great that I need power in my prayer. Do you need them in yours? I will not take the time to do it today, but I will ask you this week to look at Isaiah chapter 58. In Isaiah 58, God lays out for them the type of fast he desires. And the fast he desires is not just doing without food but it's doing without food for the purpose of ministering to others, to release those in bondage, to break the chains of oppression and stuff of that nature. If you'll read this, what it means is that when we fast, we will become more like a sanctified believer in Christ. So as homework, look at Isaiah 58. And then I want to stop by just asking you to really pray about this. Pray about this. Uh, will, you, um, will you have to make some allowances in your life if you fast? Pretty much. Uh, you will find yourself getting cold. And so you probably have to wear a sweater inside when it's only 73 degrees or wear socks when you go to bed at night. Uh, will you find yourself that you have as much physical energy as you normally do? Usually not. Um, and so, you know, you just have to, to limit yourself. I, <laughs> one of the reasons why I love fasting is you don't have to go to the why. But I don't go the way anyway, do I? So anyway, but, you know, and so you will find some allowances that you can make if you have a physical problem like I do. Do I totally abstain from food and just drink water? No. My blood sugar will go absolutely bonkers. But what I do is I lay off solid food. So I don't, I don't sit down with a meal and have a meal with everybody else. I usually just sit there and talk. Or, but I do drink fruit juices. And I do drink some things that allow my blood sugar not to drop too low, which is something I usually never have a problem with. Uh, physically, it does incredible benefits to you. The biggest craze right now in dieting and healthy living is called intermittent fasting, 
where what they want you to do is go, you know, like 18 hours without eating and only eat eight hours a day or something. Or pick a day of the week and, you know, okay, that's for dieting. But the reality is you will do this for a spiritual reason. God, I just want to fast today for you. Just one day. I want to get up early and I know I've got at least three extra hours because I'm not eating. If I, if I normally take an hour lunch break, since I'm not going to eat, maybe I'll drink a protein shake or I'll, whatever you choose to do, it doesn't matter. But during that hour, I want to spend time praying. I want to spend time listening to praise music. I want to read my Bible. And I just, just by taking the meals away and the meal preparations away, you'll find that you will open up an immense amount of time in your life to be able to spend the time on things that really matter. And then you'll find that as you grow closer to him, the, another crazy amount of time that you waste time on watching dumb stuff on television or you know, clicking through Facebook or looking at Instagram or stuff will just have no desire anymore and you'll find that your spiritual life will grow. If you haven't done it ever, try it. If you have done it, but it's been a long time, try it again. Spend a couple days asking the Lord about it and planning and making it a time of wonder because we need this kind of commitment in prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, fasting humbles yourself. The Jews called it afflicting my soul with fasting. And pray this kind of commitment to prayer, as Andrew Murray talked about. And seek your face. It's why I'm fasting, Lord, because I want to seek your face fellowship with you and turn from the wicked ways and God will show you what those wicked ways are in your life. Then the promise is God will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. And I can't think of a better time for us to rediscover. It's not really an ancient discipline, but since we haven't, since we're rediscovering an ancient spiritual discipline, that almost every spiritual hero that we have used and added to our arsenal to become more like him. Amen? Let me pray.